0: This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website and podcast that wonders what good farming looks like. On the show, I interview farmers, writers and academics about the big ideas that could change our food system for the better, and the little tweaks that can help farmers become more profitable. Everything lives at the ruminant.CA. All right, on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Jordan. So today's episode features two segments, both on the practical aspects of farming. And the first one is a little more aimed at livestock producers, although I think there's something in there for everybody. And it is my own review of a new educational resource that was just released in the last couple of weeks. uh, The latest uh, offering from a company called Verge Permaculture. The second segment is uh, more relevant to market gardeners, and it features an interview with past guest, Eric Barnhorst, about his own attempt at building a vacuum seeder for the nursery. And also, we have a bit of a conversation about soil blocks. Eric and I both use soil blocks in the nursery, and so we compare notes on the recipes we use for our soil blocks, and he also talks about uh, the kinds of trays that he has built to, to, to hold his soil blocks. So, that's the latest episode, and I am going to start you off with my review of the latest offering from Verge Permaculture. Hope you enjoy. If you're anything like me, you've been in this position before. You've read a book or a series of books by an expert in this or that branch of farming or gardening, and, though the material is a great source of inspiration or knowledge, you're left wanting more. Maybe certain sections of the book lack clarity, and so you've got questions for the author that need answering. Presumably, that's why the seminars that these authors often give are so popular. Last year, Jean-Martin Fortier gave a seminar on his recent book, The Market Gardener, a couple of towns over, and I jumped at the chance to attend to hear him answer questions about the techniques that have made him successful. But what if the seminars are too expensive or too far away to be able to attend? This specific conundrum appears to be the inspiration behind an educational package that was just released by a company out of Alberta called Verge Permaculture. A while back, Verge invited famed farmer Joel Salatin, author of numerous books on his successes raising pastured livestock at Polyface Farm in Virginia, to give a three-day seminar to live attendees in Calgary, as well as to people watching online.
1: This is is good good audio here. Um, I might blast it out a couple times if I get fired up about something. It's great to be with you up here in, uh, where am I? In Alberta. And uh, well, two weeks ago, I did this in Australia and then I did it in New Zealand, so I'm all over. Uh, but you know what, what I've found is that, um, that there are many more similarities around the world than there are dissimilarities.
0: And uh, I think at the- Verge recorded the sessions and ended up with over 18 hours of video of Joel offering a synthesis of everything he has learned while farming at Polyface next verge solicited insights from farmers around the world who were following joel's principles and then posted the questions they had back to joel and his son daniel in a series of audio interviews they then took all of this material and synthesized it into an educational package that is now available for purchase on verge's website they call it the salatin semester at first glance the salatin semester can feel a bit overwhelming its contents include 12 dvds six hours of additional audio interviews with Joel and Daniel, a study guide that features material gathered during online forums with farmers around the world, an electronic resource list for making further inquiries, and a virtual tour of Polyface Farm. When you open up the thing, it's hard to know where exactly to begin. So I asked the editor of the package, Andrew Bennett, where he thought I should start.
2: Right. How do you how do you approach it? I mean, it is really encyclopedic in, in some ways. Uh, I wouldn't even call it an encyclopedia, though. It's not organized like that at all, but... It's, it's overwhelming, and it's a large amount of information. I'd say the, the the obvious place to start is to watch Joel's seminar and absorb it. There's 18 hours of it, so it's a lot. and And to take take your time with it, or, or take it however you'd like. Um, I would personally approach it with a notebook and take detailed notes uh, because if you know if you know Joel Salatin, you know he's a mile a minute. And he's coming out uh, just rapid fire with great information. So to review the seminar itself later, you probably want to have, uh, you know, an book companion actually, you know, treat this like a course.
0: I think Andrew's right. The Salatin semester was born out of the original seminars that Joel gave, and so they're the natural place to begin consuming these materials. But start watching the seminars, and you soon realize the value of the other components of the package. In his preface to the study guide, Andrew, who also raises livestock in British Columbia, writes, The real meat and greatest pleasure I took from this course was the interplay among the participants. Having consumed some of the course, I can see why Andrew feels this way. The study guide is packed with insights and observations gained during online forums conducted with experienced farmers who have attempted to put Joel's principles into practice. So many self-help books fall down because the practices they espouse haven't been tested in other contexts. With the Salatin semester, we are exposed not only to the principles that have made Polyphase successful, but to how these principles have been applied and adapted in different farm settings around North America and other parts of the world. To get a sense of the material, I bit off a small chunk of it by watching a 90-minute session, disc number 5, on Joel's approach to raising laying hens in his famous eggmobiles. I'm a veggie grower, but a few years ago I raised laying hens in poorly constructed chicken tractors. The chickens weren't very happy and neither was I. So I figured this would be a good one to both learn from and critique. Today
1: is We'll deal with uh, the eggmobiles and layers first, then we'll go to broilers and then we'll go to turkeys and, um, and we'll see how the day goes along. Um, there's, it's hard to believe that there's that much to cover, uh, with this topic, but I think as we get into it, you'll be surprised at, uh, how much there is to cover. All right, so uh, we really got into the laying chickens, and there's a big difference between laying chickens and meat birds. So when I say layers, I mean, you know, these are layer birds. We really got into them uh, as a way to sanitize behind the cows. Uh, Those cows are dropping a calling card that is conducive to ink.
0: My first observation was the high quality of the recordings. Watching them, I felt like a member of the live audience. Verge used multiple cameras and quality microphones, which makes for pleasurable viewing. One small complaint is that some of Joel's slides are enlarged for the DVD audience, but not all of them. Most that aren't enlarged aren't very important, but I still would have liked to have a good look at them. And while we're on the subject of gripes, I'll add that I would have liked to see some sort of index that catalogs the contents of each DVD— There are 12 discs, and each disc represents a different topic, such as marketing, or grass finishing, or fencing, or raising pastured pork. Beyond that, though, there's no way to quickly find a specific insight of Joel's if you decide to go back later for reviewing. For example, you might remember that the disc on laying hens contained a minute or two on how to deal with hawks. But without any sort of index, you're forced to sift through the video bit by bit trying to find it. This is a challenge for instructional videos in general, not just for Verge's. but in future versions of the package, Verge might consider adding some sort of index to help viewers find their way back to specific topics in the sessions. Overall, though, I learned a ton from the session on layers. As someone who had trouble training his birds to return to their movable coop each night, I appreciated the amount of time Joel devotes to the importance of and approach to training your birds to do this. I also learned a lot about how to design laying boxes to keep eggs clean, such as locking the birds out of the boxes after 4 p.m. and orienting the boxes to reduce the amount of light they're exposed to. Actually, the session proceeds like a laundry list of insights about why my own attempts at using a mobile chicken coop weren't very successful. This was helped by the live question and answer session that closed out the video. Now, if you're like me and you haven't read any of Salton's books, then you might be forgiven for wondering whether a guy who seemingly spends all of his time writing, speaking, and appearing in food ink is really that much of a farmer. My own skepticism was put to rest, though, once I watched some of these seminars. Here's Salatin fielding a question about how to tell when a hen has stopped laying.
1: You can judge them. Uh, you can tell by, the, there are several ways to tell if a bird is laying, like an older bird, for example, to know if she's still laying. Uh, the first, the, the most important one is pigmentation. Body pigment. When a bird begins to lay, they take the yellow pigment from their body and put it in the egg yolk. So as they begin to lay, they drain the yellow pigment out of their body. And that comes out in a certain order vent, eye ring, earlobe, beak, feet, and shanks. Vent, eye ring, earlobe, beak, feet, and shanks. And that's the order that the pigment comes out. All right. When she stops laying, the pigment comes back in in the same order. So if she's got yellow in her vent, but white shanks, you know she's going out of production rather than coming into production. The pliability of her pubic bones. When she's laying well, her her abdominal uh, area back there gets extremely supple. It's not fatty and hard. And you can put two to three fingers between her pubic bones. They're very uh, uh, um, uh, soft and pliable and slender feel kind of like uh, like, like toothpicks and uh, because they're getting all this abdominal exercise every day laying the eggs
2: okay. uh, next one's from calgary um, are raptors an issue and how do you manage uh, the predators at the eggmobile
1: well that's a long answer um, there are several things one is we have a lot of people on the farm
0: this is a guy who has clearly put some serious hours into mastering his vocation and my overall take on the Salatin Semester is that it's a really good investment for anyone willing to put some serious hours of their own into becoming better farmers. For more info on the Salatin Semester, check out SalatinSemester.com. All right, everyone. So that's my review of the Salatin Semester. But now that you've heard it, I've got to tell you how this all came about and what it means for one of you. I was approached by Verge Permaculture and asked if I was interested in reviewing this, uh, this course. And since the course is well within the wheelhouse of what I tend to focus on on the ruminant, I accepted the offer. And part of the offer was that Verge offered to give me a, a physical copy of the Salton semester. I emailed them back and asked them whether if instead I could give a copy away to one of you. And they said, fine. So here's the deal. I have a copy of the Salton semester to give away to a listener. And so here's what I thought we'd do. If you want to be entered into a draw for this package, you need to do one of the following three things within the first week after this episode goes live. Okay, so number one, go find The Ruminant Podcast on Facebook and share one of the posts that you find on that page on your own Facebook feed. Number two, email me, editor, at theruminant.ca, and just tell me what you think of the show. It doesn't have to be positive. It can be good or bad. It won't affect your probability of winning, but just just give me a sense of, of how you feel about the show. Number three, visit the iTunes store, search the ruminant podcast, and then give the podcast a review in the iTunes store. It's really helpful for getting the podcast out there. And again, it doesn't matter if you don't give me a perfect review, it won't affect your probability of winning. Just make sure you leave a review under your own real name or your farm's real name so that I can track you down if you happen to be the winner. At the end of the week, just before the next episode of the show, I will choose a name and announce the winner on the next episode. And again, one lucky person is going to win a physical copy of the Salton Semester, which is valued at 250 bucks. Good luck, everybody. Okay, folks, so you're about to hear part two of the episode, my conversation with Eric Barnhorst regarding his home-built vacuum seeder as well as uh, some aspects of his approach to soil blocks. But just before you hear it, I want you to know that Eric gave me some photos to share uh, of both the trays that he uses for his soil blocks and also of the vacuum seeder he built. So I think you should go and check those out. They're over at theruminant.ca and they'll be included with the show notes for this episode. So just look for the post on this episode. All right, here's the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Um, so Eric, you, you caught the, uh, short episode I did, um, featuring a do it yourself vacuum seeder, uh, right offhand. I can't remember the name of the farmer who called in, but, uh, you wrote me to say that you also built your own vacuum seeder. It didn't work very well, at least the first go around. And now you have some insights or do's and don'ts if someone else is going to try it. Do you, do you want to share those right now?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the background is I do all my transplanting with soil blocks and uh, there didn't seem to be an obvious commercial uh, uh, product that would do vacuum seeding into soil blocks and I wanted to stick with soil blocks. Uh, So I was actually willing to shell out the money for an expensive one if it would really save that much labor. But I decided to build one to try to fit with the, the trays that I already have Uh, for the soil block method that I use. Um, And I especially wanted to use it for small seeds, um, like or relatively small, like onions and scallions, uh, because I spend a lot of time uh, transplanting those in the spring. Uh, So uh, I had kind of seen the basic design uh, from some commercial models, and I tried to copy it using basically... um, the same method as your previous interview. So with a shop vac plugged into a box uh, with some holes drilled on one side. Um, I think the... uh, I was really worried about having a lip around the edge so that you could pour the seeds and not have them shoot off the sides when you're shaking them around to try to get them onto the holes. So what I did was I built a plywood box and with one side missing. And before I built it, I, uh, I made a little channel with a table saw on the sides of the box so I could slide in an 8th inch panel that I drilled the holes in. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think the baking sheet method would be better because uh, the 8th inch MDF sheet I used bends too much when I turn on the shop back. and the problem with that is you end up with clusters of seeds in the holes in the middle rows and not as many on the outside rows. It doesn't happen with large seeds, um, but it does happen with small seeds, which is what I wanted to use. It for. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of us would want
3: to use it for the small seeds. Yeah. So I think having, having that plate be very stiff, uh, is important. Um, so using the baking sheet is a good idea, I think. Um, I'm, I might try that this winter. Um, and uh, e- either that or use a thicker piece of material and build up the the lip after the fact instead of trying to be clever and, and slide it into a channel. Right. Uh, and the other thing I did, which um, I think if someone was trying to do with a shop vac... Oh, I also used a pretty large shop vac because it's the one I had lying around. So I I remember in the interview with uh, the other guy, he said uh, he used a very small shop vac, which I I wonder if that would actually be better in terms of bending the plate too much. Ah,
0: just because your suction maybe was a bit bit too high.
3: Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I did that I would say is probably a do is uh, I used... uh, You can buy um, uh, dust collection hardware that fits onto shop vacs and has all kinds of different connectors and things. So I used a bunch. They're not very expensive. You can buy them from woodworking stores. So uh, instead of trying to jam the, shop, the end of the shop vac into a hole and hope that it seals well enough, you can buy a little uh, plate that you can plug a hose into, and you screw the plate down and put a little caulking underneath it, and you get a perfect seal. That was one thing, uh, to connect it to the box properly. Uh, they sell them, I think, to make custom jigs for woodworking. Mm-hmm. And the other uh, dust collection part I used was um, they are called blast gates. Um, you use them to clean out the dust ports, but it lets you turn off the suction with, without turning off the shop vac. Because it's very annoying if you have to be shutting the whole vacuum cleaner on and off every time you want to... Um, Drop the seeds.
0: Just ergonomically, just having to bend over or reach or whatever—is that what you mean?
3: Yeah, ergonomically, because you want to have the the vacuum. First of all, the vacuum cleaner is loud, so you want it far away from you, just for comfort. Uh, but also ergonomically, uh, the way I did it, at least, you have the vacuum cleaner set up beside you, and then your trays up on a, a bench or a table, and then beside the trays that you're working on, the uh, the cedar attachment. So you don't want to have to reach down off the table every time to shut the power button on and off. Right. And they're not exactly easy. I, I mean, they're easy enough, but if you're moving fast, you want to make sure that you don't bump. Once you flip the, the cedar part over onto your tray, you want to make sure you don't bump it when you turn the power switch off.
0: Right. Um, so by
3: having the blast gate right on top, you can shut it on and off right um, at the cedar instead of at the, the vacuum. Right. So,
0: I'm really, I was, I was really interested to hear that, that you're doing this or attempting it with soil blocks. I don't think there's tons of people out there, uh, using soil blocks, but some of us do. I do for most of my seedlings. And, um, I've kind of always just assumed that it would be too finicky to whether, whether I could find a Well, I, yeah, I didn't think I'd find a commercial, uh, uh, seed, uh, air, air seeder built for soil block situations. And to build it myself seemed finicky. Um, having gone through your first model that clearly needs some improvements, are you confident you can build a setup that will work and make you be worth it in terms of the gains and efficiency in planting soil blocks?
3: I think so. I think um, being able to control the section uh, a little bit better would help. Uh, definitely a stiffer plate would help. And then the other thing that I've noticed, um, that, I mean, the main problem was not having a consistent um, singulation of the seeds. So some holes would have one seed, and some would have four seeds on it. Mm. Um, so, but I, and those, the ones with four would tend to be in the middle, where the plate was bending. So I think between those two things, it would help a lot. The other thing I've noticed uh, on some of the commercial plates is it seems like there's a bit of a cup uh, where, it, where each seed goes that isn't drilled all the way through, and then a tiny hole in the bottom. So I may try that too, uh, instead I of see. trying to match just the size of the hole to the size of the seed. Yeah,
0: yeah, that that's probably the, important.
3: Yeah, the tiniest pinhole that you can, and then just um, make a bit of a cup that's closer to the size of the seed. So uh, then it it's easier to block it, the uh, pinhole.
0: I assume you're using custom built. Trays to hold your soil blocks—is that correct?
3: Yeah, actually, that's one of the reasons I really don't want to go away from them. Other than the plastic waste, if I'm never short on trays, I just cut another piece of wood.
0: Right. So, really, okay. So, is this? Are you using like a stand-up soil blocker that presses about twenty at a time? Like the kind of the one and a half by one and a half inch blocks, and you get twenty per press?
3: Yeah, I get twelve. It, it's that okay. One. It's so yeah, they're, they're almost bigger. two inches. Two inches yeah. by
0: two. Okay. Uh, and I, I, so, I guess to be able to use like an, an air seeder, um, vacuum seeder, uh, you just need the you need the, to know that every time you press, it's it, it, those the blocks are going exactly in the same place. I e there's no extra space in the trays. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Although you have a bit of flexibility because I'm as I'm sure you know from using them, the the hole it's not the size of a seed. It's it's, it's quite a bit bigger. You know, it's okay. poking like you okay. With your finger. Yeah. So, Uh, It can be off by, I'd say, a half inch, well, maybe close to half an inch before you'd have a a big problem.
0: Okay, well, do you mind very quickly describing how you build your trays, what materials you're using? Because I I don't like what I've done for for custom-built trays, so I'd love to find a a better model.
3: Sure. Um, The the main one that I use... um, Well, I use two... Um, two sizes. I use 48 count trays that are about 10 inches by 24. Um, and I put a, so I just cut a piece of, I, I think it's uh just cheap pine, like one by 12. That's actually 10 inches wide cut to two feet. And then I put a one by two on one of the long sides uh, to kind of register the blocks against, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, So, so you know that, that they're pushed up exactly against that back. And it also gives you something to grab uh, when you pick them up without sticking your thumb through one of the blocks.
0: So the, the bottom piece, there's, there's a bottom piece to the tray that is, is a piece of wood. Is that what I'm understanding? Yep. Ah, so you're not concerned about, like I've always built mine with mesh as the bottom. Uh, just right. for air, just for airflow and stuff. Have, you haven't, you found it fine just to have it sitting on, on a thin piece of, of, of pine.
3: Yes, that it's, and it's very practical is the reason I, I've, I've done a couple of side by side comparisons and the mesh ones are slightly better. But if you are prompt with your transplants, I don't find a big difference. If you let them kind of linger in the tray for a really long time, um, you'll see the roots don't don't do the air pruning thing on the bottom they'll they'll scoot out the bottom and and get all tangled with each other
0: okay uh
3: Um, on the pine whereas if they have if they really have the air they don't they don't want to do that as much from my experience at least
0: right right
3: um okay but you're talking about things things that have been in the blocks for for way too long you have other problems by then. yeah yeah that's true Uh,
0: okay okay
3: so um
0: Oh, man. So then,
3: in terms of fitting the vacuum cedar over top of that, the only then I used that backing piece against the long side mm-hmm. to register one side of the cedar, yeah. and then I made little uh, legs on the sort of the opposite side of the cedar mm-hmm. that would stand on the ground to hold it at the right height. Right. Perfect. Above the blocks, and then the, I never had a problem with the seeds not hitting the blocks that worked perfectly. Okay. So even when I had uh, the wrong numbers of seeds, um, they, they always hit the blocks.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm abusing your time, but I got to ask you now, because I can, I can add this into a, an episode you probably haven't heard yet, but um, what are you doing for your soil block mix?
3: Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is... Uh, oh, okay, yeah, uh, I'll just tell you. Uh, I, I've gone through a bunch of different uh, mixes, and I ended up getting the uh, the organic uh, Pro Mix from the local garden store, and it started just out of laziness, and it works fine.
0: Like just that? That's all you're using?
3: Yeah. I mean, in terms of for texture, so I I, I still add my fertilizer mix.
0: Right. So, is the Pro Mix you're getting not coming fertilized? Like, it doesn't have amendments in it? Is it just no? It's just yeah, the uh, medium
3: right the organic one is just um like long fiber um beet moss uh perlite vermiculite and uh it's ph adjusted
0: cool okay uh well uh, so you like
3: know, the, the other ones will be the non-organic ones will often have starter fertilizers but i i don't want to use them
0: right okay well um i'm able to get so i like you i went through a lot of different like kind of recipes and eventually got lazy or just more efficiency minded that it was taking me way too long to mix it all myself from all the right. primary ingredients um, and hard on my body because I was doing big batches. I just hated it. So I ended up going towards, after talking to another farmer who was using mainly a, a starter, mix, like a mix, uh, like you've just described. In the end, I discovered that. So Sunshine is one of the major brands and they have a line of organic bales you can buy, different kinds. Yeah. And I discovered one supplier who, who stocks a Sunshine Organic number five, and the other suppliers don't. And the number five I found to be awesome, and it does have some uh, amendments in it. So just, ah. I mean, that's been my experience. And then I've always done, I don't get precise about it, but I actually mix 50% that stuff with, um, sorry, up to 50% of a very well composted horse manure that we produce on the farm. Right. Uh, I don't produce it my, myself, the horses do, but, uh, uh, we up to 50% that with the the remainder, uh, of that mi- of the sunshine number five. So, um, and then I get, I think I get the sunshine number three when I don't want amendments in there. So, um, but the same deal. So, so anywhere from say 25 to 50% well broken down horse manure compost to, and then all the rest would be so up to 75% in the mix. And I found that works really well.
3: Hmm. yeah yeah I think I went through a similar process where I had all these complicated um, blends and it was cheaper and better and going to save the world and then just for efficiency when the, the crunch comes uh, I found the, the just the straight mix was from the bag with my starter fertilizer was worked fine for me
0: awesome well Eric Barnhurst thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the podcast I, I really appreciate it
3: Well that's it folks I
0: hope you enjoyed that And just before I go I want to give a special thanks And a shout out to Scott Humphreys, Who has been really helpful in the last few weeks Helping me plan out the season of episodes to come From the Ruminant So thanks a lot Scott I really appreciate it And to the rest of you Have a great week And if you're planning on entering the draw To win a copy of this Helton semester I wish you luck And I will talk to you in a week Bye bye
4: Like it was meant to be our oh, don't Fred, honey, I've got a plan to make our final escape All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll own nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be Could we live in a place that don't want us? A place that is trying to bleed us dry. We could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands. I've been doing a lot. Some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house Or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out Into the wilds and graces We'll keep close quarters With gentle faces And live next door To the birds and the bees And live life like it was meant to be Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-da-da